Thank you for listening to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us. That means if you've never been to church, if you walked away from church, or have struggled to find a church home, we were started for you. For more information about Collective and how to join us on a Sunday morning, please head to www.mycollective.church. All right, so I'm going to brag about you all for a little bit. I'm just going to talk about how awesome you guys are as people. So if you're here with family because you're in town visiting for Thanksgiving, you should be proud of the people that brought you today. If you're here for the first time, this will show you what type of church you just walked into. So two weeks ago, we handed out reusable grocery bags with a grocery list in them, asking people to fill them up and bring them last Sunday so we could prepare 75 Thanksgiving meals for families of students here at West Frederick Middle School. And you all went above and beyond. Uh, this is like one of my favorite images from Sunday. After, this is after second service. It's like flowing into it. We're like pushing our team members all the way around. People are having to walk around piles of food so that they can go pick up their kids. It was incredible. But here's the best part. When all 75 of the bags were packed, there was so much extra food that we were actually able to fill up 13 additional shelves in the food pantry here at West Frederick Middle School. And so we went from a space that barely had any food to a space that's full of food. You guys can clap for that. It's really good. When all was said and done, we believe that you all brought in over 2,500 pounds of food. On Monday, we stopped in to drop off some of the turkeys and check in to see, hey, is there anything else that we can do, um, more organization, if you need anything else from us. And Tracy, who's a community liaison here, uh, she's in charge of the pantry, and she could not stop bragging about you all. And she wanted me to let you all know that she loves you and that she appreciates you. And, and here's a woman who's been in this job for about 20 years. She's been serving in the school for a long time. If you know anything about this school, it needs a lot of help, and, and a lot of places aren't able to provide it. And so Tracy gives everything she has for this school, and she knows that there is a church that meets here on Sundays, that even when she's not here, magically her pantry gets filled back up. And so she just wanted to make sure that you all knew that she was thankful for you. Tracy cries a lot too, so there's just a lot of crying on Monday um, because she recognizes that th these kids wouldn't have Thanksgiving without it. So thank you guys for doing that. Thank you for being a church that's willing to give time to love our city. Thank you for being a church that's willing to give resources to love our city. Thank you for being a church that's truly for Frederick. And I know I'm super biased, right? But I'm really proud to be a part of this church. So thank you all for doing that. I can't wait to see what happens next year when we do it again. So now I want you to think about the worst job you ever had. This is easy for a lot of people. Like, I got it. Some of you are in that job right now. This is a job where you hate going to sleep at night because it means you have to wake up and go to work the next day. This is a job where the best part of the day is leaving. This is a job where you have a dysfunctional boss, obnoxious coworkers, and lousy pay. And for me, the worst job I ever had was about five years ago when I worked as a front desk manager as a hotel, at a hotel in Johnson City. And I've shared some of these stories before. They're never ending. That job was miserable. The work environment was toxic. There was long hours for very little pay. Dealing with guests day in and day out required a level of patience that I just don't have. In fact, when I got the job in customer service, like even my own parents were like, you're not going to be good at this. I will never have a more terrible job. There was never a day that I went into work that I walked away feeling like I enjoyed what happened. Just to give you a little perspective on why I hated this job so much, one weekend a man and his adult son checked in for an 18-day stay. While I was checking them in, I read back their reservation and informed them that they had actually booked a smoking room. We're in Tennessee. You still smoke in rooms till like a year ago. It's Tennessee. It's 10 years behind, people. Immediately when I read back their reservation, they got defensive and they demanded a new room. The issue is that they actually prepaid. When you prepay for rooms, you can't change it. It's just part of the Hilton policy. We couldn't do anything about it. 
And so they had to move into and check into a smoking room, and they're not happy about it. So much so for the next few days, every time they left in the morning and came back at night, they had to stop by the front desk just to argue with me. Every single day. It was, what, it was the beginning of the routine and the end of the day. It was like clockwork. And they did this for a full week, but then one morning, the son actually wasn't with the dad. The son didn't walk outside with the dad. Same was true in the afternoon. And I didn't see the son again for the next 11 days that they stayed at this hotel. It was weird. It was almost like he disappeared. Last night of the stay, the dad came back at 4 p.m. per usual, but within minutes of him walking past the desk, he was back up front and he was screaming at me. He screamed, someone broke into my room and stole my suitcase. And so, of course, I'm skeptical, but I asked him to explain it, and he said, I had a suitcase full of money, right? Don't we all? And your housekeeper stole it. I know she did. Still skeptical. Okay, I asked him, all right, well, how much money is missing? He goes, easily $6,000. If you can't find it by the time I leave tomorrow, you're going to have to write me a check. <laughs> Don't you wish that worked, right? <laughs> you just go to hotels and be like, someone stole it. Just write me the check. I'm fine. So I wasn't really sure how to respond, so I just stared at him. And for those of you who don't know me very well, my face isn't super pleasant when I'm not smiling. I have a tendency to look angry. I can't help it. That's just what my face does. And evidently, that's what my face was doing because he started to get really defensive toward me. He started saying, you don't believe me, do you? And I, and I just kept trying to explain, hey, listen, like, it's not whether or not I believe you. We're going to try to figure out what happened. We're going to go through the proper steps and let, let's figure out uh, if your bag disappeared. And so to try to figure out exactly what happened, I called housekeeping to see the reports from the previous two weeks. The way our hotel worked, there were only two people that worked on that wing. And so we knew when they checked that off, we knew who these people were. So we asked them, did you steal a suitcase? And their response was, no. So we're like, okay, well, check one. They didn't steal a suitcase. But the reports also confirmed they'd been in those rooms or they'd been around those rooms. The issue was this. He had a do not disturb on his door for the entire time that he was there. And so the housekeepers had actually never actually been in his room to clean it the entire time. So they couldn't have gone in to, to steal this bag. Now, I recognize that a small plastic door hanger doesn't stop people from going into rooms, so we actually took it a step further. In hotels, there's actually another trick to see who is in rooms. It's called interrogating a lock. There's a little uh, hotel industry secret for you. Key cards are numerically coded, so you can actually take a small chip reading device, and you can slide it in the key card slot, and you can print out room reports. You can see every key that entered that room for up to three months. And so when we did that, we saw that only two keys had entered the room for the entire stay. His and his son's. At this point, we had housekeeping reports, key card reports. We even found footage that showed his son walking into the side entrance of the hotel, grabbing a suitcase and walking out. So I asked him to come up to the front desk. And here's the best part. When I asked him what the odds were of his son stealing the suitcase, he responded to me by saying, what son? And I reminded him that I was the one who checked them in, so I knew he didn't come to this hotel alone. He was pretending like he was just there by himself. And I was like, dude, I saw you seven days in a row. You and your son walked in and out of this hotel. In fact, you asked me to make a key, and you said, this is for my son. So, but he continued to deny it and continued to demand that we gave him $6,000. So I encouraged him to do the right thing, check out, and just leave. And so that's what he did. A few hours after he officially left, I got a phone call from housekeeping asking me to come down to the room that he had checked out of. And this was never a good sign. This meant that someone had destroyed a room or destroyed something in the room before they left. And when I walked down to the room, the door was ajar and the housekeeping manager was laughing so hard that she was crying. She told me to walk into the bathroom and look at the mirror. And I was terrified. <laughs> but instead of it being what you all are probably assuming it would be, it was gummy bears. He had purchased an indescribable amount of gummy bears. He had bitten the heads off of all of them, and he covered the entire bathroom mirror with half-chewed gummy bears. It was insane, but the reality was when working at this hotel, this kind of thing was a normal occurrence. 
This is my life, people. I did it for two years. And this is one of the reasons why I hated this job. It didn't matter if I was good at it. People treated me poorly. It didn't matter how hard I worked. The pay was lousy. I dreaded going in. It lacked purpose because it wasn't what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. I constantly dreamt of walking out in the middle of a shift, quitting, and never looking back. Working there was so stressful that my eye actually began to twitch anytime someone mentioned a double tree or cookies, because he handed out cookies every time a guest came in. My wife thought it was really, really funny. She'd be like, cookies, and my eye would like start going nuts. I'm not, it's like, I wish I was kidding. I hated this job that much. But I stayed because I had to pay my bills. I stayed because I had school debt that was looming over me. I stayed because I didn't have another place to go, but I was miserable. And today we're closing out our first ever giving series at Collective called Unleash. And it's based on a story in Exodus 14. And, and here's a little bit of the context. Here's what happened. So the Israelites were enslaved by the Egyptians and they're crying out to God to save them. God hears their cries and he chooses Moses to get the Israelites out of Egypt and he has, them, has him go and confront Pharaoh. But Pharaoh isn't interested, so God actually has to intervene. He sends plagues, he sends death to Egypt. Eventually, after all this happened, Pharaoh relents and lets the Israelites go, but right before they're completely free, he changes his mind. He decides that he actually enjoys having the Israelites as slaves, so he sends an army to go and attack them, and the Egyptians actually trap the Israelites between the army and the Red Sea. Now, with nowhere to go, God actually through Moses parts the Red Sea and the Israelites walk safely through the water to the other side. So Moses raises his staff, God says, I'll split this open. And what they do is they walk through. And even the Cliff Notes version of this story is intense. We actually went through more of it last week. But one of the things that we see in this story is that in order for the Israelites to be delivered from slavery, they had to obey God. In order for them to even get to the other side of the Red Sea, they had to trust God before they even started walking. They couldn't see how powerful and wonderful and loving God is until they obeyed him and followed his command. And in doing so, what they're able to see is they're able to see the power of God unleashed. And this, in Exodus 14, is how the story ends. When the people of Israel saw the mighty power that the Lord had unleashed against the Egyptians, they were filled with awe before him. They put their faith in the Lord. And so in this series, we're saying, let's see the power of God unleashed. Let's stand in awe of the mighty power of God. Jesus wants what is best for you. And that really means two different things. He wants what's best for you when you die. He wants you to live forever in heaven with him. But on a really practical level, he wants what is best for you in this life, right here and right now. And that happens when we walk in obedience with him. We talk about this all the time. The way we walk in obedience to him is to submit to scriptures, to submit to what the Bible teaches, to trust God's words and live accordingly. And so we believe that if you wanna have the best marriage possible, you follow scripture. If you need reconciliation in a relationship, you trust scripture. If you need more discipline in your life, you study scripture. If you need help in relationships, you obey scripture. The Bible is very simply the story of God and his love for his people. So if you learn it, memorize it, study it, meditate on it, it will show you how to live so you can experience life as your creator meant for you to have it. Now that doesn't mean that life will be perfect. It doesn't mean there won't be pain but it does mean that you'll have a fuller life than if you simply live based on other people's opinions or even your own emotions. And so in this series, we are learning from scripture how to unleash God when it comes to our money because we wanna see the power of God unleashed in this church and our city. And one of the ways that we will see that is if we trust God and we submit to him when it comes to our finances. Because we all know this, money is a powerful thing. It can be a tool that takes you into debt. It can hurt your marriage. It can hurt your family. It can hurt your future but it can also be a tool that takes you out of debt, that you save, that you invest, that you give, and that you impact other people with. 
And so over the last three weeks in the series, we've talked about these topics. We've talked about getting out of debt. The average person in America has $137,000 in debt. And most of us, we feel that impacting our lives. We feel that burden every single day. But scripture teaches us that's not actually what God wants for us. And so we've talked about how to practically get rid of that debt because God doesn't want us to be slave to the lender. We've talked about the difference between being generous and just giving. Generous people give a percentage, they give consistently. They give because they believe in a mission. People who just give do so sporadically. They give emotionally, they're not disciplined. And last week we talked about how we guard against all kinds of greed and the way you do that is by being generous. At the end of the day, it's whether it's for you or for someone else, it's either greed or generosity. And so today we're closing out the series, but we're actually gonna be talking about work because that's where this all starts. Unless you've won the lottery or been handed a pile of cash or duped a hotel into writing you a $6,000 check, before you can even think about being generous, we didn't actually give that to them, by the way. Some of you are like, did you actually write this check? No, we didn't. Uh, But before you can even be generous, you have to work. And so I believe that if you change your perspective on your job, you will approach your finances with more purpose and generosity than ever before. Genesis 2.15 says the Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. So even in the beginning, we learn that work was created by God. Work gave Adam purpose. Work connected Adam to God. It was good. Now, some people will twist scripture, which I know shocks everyone, but you may have heard a Christian say before that work is evil. They'll say that in heaven, we aren't gonna have to work because work is a part of a curse from Adam and Eve's sin. But if you read scripture closely, you'll realize that's actually inaccurate because Adam was actually given work in the garden before sin ever entered the world, right? I think it's just a cop-out because people wanna be lazy. We try to decide that it's a curse so you don't have to work anymore. But what we learn in Genesis 2 is that work brought Adam purpose. Work brought Adam closer to God. Work wasn't intended to bring pain. Work wasn't created to be a burden for people. That all changed after sin entered the world. Adam and Eve disobeyed God. They sinned. They walked out of alignment with what he was teaching them. And one of the consequences was work that brings pain, work that brings sweat to your brow. God tells Adam that because he disobeyed, there will be thorns and thistles in this world, and they will impede you. But the curse isn't work. The curse is work that brings pain. And we feel that. And we feel that every day because you aren't doing what you dreamt of when you were younger because you made bad decisions in your past and they have forced you to work a job to pay off debt, because you're living above your means so you have to keep a job with a bad boss simply to afford the lifestyle that you have created for yourself, because you slacked off in the beginning and now everyone you started working with is moving up and you're now waiting for your time, because you chose a job based on the paycheck and overlooked integrity. And so you feel cursed and and the reality is you're not alone. A recent study found that 70% of Americans say they hate their jobs and 15% are indifferent. And this leads to people who end up being sick or depressed or divorced or abusing substance because they're unhappy with their careers. But we know this tension, like we're unhappy, but we have to work. But the thing is work can be a good thing, but the problem is we're unsatisfied. So what can we do when we're not satisfied with the job that we have? And maybe you're unsatisfied from the start. That was me at the hotel. I knew as soon as I took that job, I hated that job. But maybe the job started as one that you loved, but as you spent more time working, you have fallen out of love with it. What do we do? What do we do when our jobs bring us pain? Whether that's physical pain or emotional pain or mental pain. The answer is that we have to change our perspective on work. We have the wrong view of work. Because Genesis 2 teaches us that God didn't intend for work to feel this way. God didn't create work to bring us pain. That's the result of sin. 
And so we have to change how we view work. Work doesn't give you purpose. You give purpose to your work. Now, I hated working at the Doubletree, but as much as I hated that job and as much pain as that job brought me, I spent way, more t- way too much time focusing on position when I should have been focusing on purpose. I cared way more about the position I was in, about the position my managers put me in, whether that's the actual job or the the lifestyle of that industry. And I cared way more about that than I did about my own purpose. And that's on me. I allowed that job to dictate my purpose. I had to work the job to keep my lights on. I had to work the job to pay debt. I had to work the job to have enough money to buy the gas to go keep working the job. But at the end of the day, that left me frustrated because of me, because I had the wrong focus. John 6, 27 says, but don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. And Jesus is saying, instead of rushing after food that perishes, our work should be directed to a food that endures. Your job is temporary, but eternity with God is forever. And so what we need to do is we need to stress a little bit less about food that spoils, and we need to invest more in our relationship with God. When I went to college, one of the first questions they asked us as freshmen was, what is your calling? And for an 18-year-old, that is a terrifying question. I'd never bought groceries before, but I was supposed to tell them as a freshman, like, here's my calling in life. In fact, I even had a friend who struggled with this for a very long time. This question haunted him. And when he was just a few months away from graduation, he had no idea what he wanted to do with his life. And because of this, he couldn't sleep. He dreaded graduation. And the problem was that he believed that his job was his calling. And some of you feel that way right now. You feel like your job is your purpose. You feel like your job's goal in life is to bring that purpose to you. But scripture actually teaches us you're not called to work a job. You're called to love God and love people. Your job is just where you get to do that. The purpose isn't to work to pay off bills. The purpose is to glorify God. Your job is a venue where those opportunities exist. And so you need to shift your purpose from money and all the stresses that come with it and shift those toward God. Now, millennials... A recent study came out stating that you all place your job or your future job equally or even ahead of your family as a dream. That's the number one dream for millennials right now is their career. And this will leave you incredibly unsatisfied with life. Your career cannot be your main source of purpose. Your career cannot be the reason why you wake up every morning. Your career cannot be where you get your value from because one day you'll wake up and you will no longer be happy at your job because something changed, a boss left, a relationship you had is no longer there and you're gonna wake up and you're no longer gonna be satisfied with that job. But because it was your top priority, because you thought it was your top dream, you will fall apart. And so you have to understand that your value and your purpose need to come from better places. Your value and your purpose cannot come from your career. The tricky part is when Jesus is teaching about this, he also recognizes that we have to work. This verse isn't saying to quit your job and don't work. It's saying that we need to change our perspective. We need to bring purpose into our job so that we can be fulfilled. And the only thing that will ever truly fill us up is a relationship with Jesus. So in order to change our perspective, there's two ways that we can change how we approach work and move from a place of pain and move into a place of peace. Colossians 3.23 says, work willingly at whatever you do as though you are working for the Lord rather than for people. So the first way you bring purpose to your work is that you work to bring glory to God. Another way to say this is that you work so other people can see the grace and truth of Jesus. We're to work as if we are working for the Lord, not people. And so if that's how we function, how would we change how we worked? How would that change how hard we worked? How would that change how we treated people? How would that change how we viewed our job? One of the reasons we struggle with our jobs is because we believe that the purpose of our job is to be glorifying to our company or our boss or our coworkers. But scripture teaches us that we work to glorify God. 
to show other people what grace looks like, to show other people what joy looks like, to show other people what honor looks like, to show other people how good God is, but we are focused on the wrong thing. In fact, when the study came out that 85% of Americans were dissatisfied or indifferent about their jobs, researchers began to try and find the root cause, right? Because we all want to know what's that one thing that makes us feel that way, because if we can eliminate that from our life, maybe we'll be happier. After interviewing thousands of people, one reason for job dissatisfaction stood out as the most common. It kept coming up person after person, and it's called praise addiction. We have been trained to seek out incentives like good grades, stickers, trophies, and praise. We like to be liked. And more important, we like to be respected. We want other people to be impressed with us. And what that does is it gives us a temporary feeling of happiness. But the problem is we end up making career choices to impress other people so we can feel a fleeting rush of validation. In the process, we lose sight of what makes us truly happy. With each career move, we just get unhappier. The more people moved up in their career, the less happy they became. And so the way we fix that is we need to spend more time glorifying God instead of seeking out the glory for ourselves. Because when you do that and you seek out that praise and that's the number one reason why you work your job, you will be frustrated, you'll develop resentment, and you you will be dissatisfied. That's why you work for the glory of God and not others or yourself. And the second way you bring purpose to your work is that you work to be generous. We read this story last week, but we're going to read it again. Uh, Then he told them, this is Jesus actually saying to these brothers, he says, a rich man had a fertile, fertile farm that produced fine crops. He said to himself, what should I do? I don't have enough room for all my crops. And he said, I know, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods. And I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night then who will get everything you worked for. People who work simply for themselves are greedy. We talked about this last week. They are fools. Yes, saving is good. Yes, providing is good. But if the reason you work is so that you can store up earthly wealth, you are a fool. When it comes to your possessions and your money, the most important thing that this story teaches us is that we need to be rich toward God. The most important thing is that we're generous. And the problem is that we have the wrong perspective when it comes to the work we do, and that impacts whether or not we are generous. We think we work to pay off debt. We think we work to own a car or a house that's above our means. We think we work to buy the overpriced items so that we can live a happy life. And because of that, we make work all about us. But if you change your perspective and you understand that you work so you can be generous, you will find a new purpose in your career. If instead of working tirelessly so you can buy the next big thing, you work tirelessly so you can be generous and bless other people, you will be happier. When Ray and I started the process of planting Collective, one of the things I had to do is I had to raise a full year's salary before I could ever take a paycheck. Now, this is a daunting task, and it was actually so daunting that the organization that started us flew me out to Chicago so I could sit down with a fundraising expert to learn how do we fundraise well. And so one of the first things he said is you actually have the conversations one-on-one. You don't do it passively. You sit across from people and you ask. And so when I got back, one of the first conversations I had was with a friend of ours named Edward. Edward had worked in the apparel industry for a very long time, but Edward would tell you that wasn't his dream. In fact, his dream was starting a company to help people do bicycle races. He wanted to develop new handles. He was an inventor, and he tried that when he was younger. He made a lot of really bad choices, barely avoided jail time, was in a ton of debt, and so that forced him into the apparel career that he was in. But at the end of the day, he recognized that it wasn't his dream, but he still was going to work hard. And so when I sat down with him to ask his family if they'd financially support us, I didn't know what we would get. 
They had a modest house. They drew, drove a few beat-up cars, nothing flashly, flash, flashy. But before I could even ask him to give, he told me that I didn't even need to ask. He's like, don't, you don't even need to worry about it. A check is in the mail. So a week later, I opened up a card from Edward, and there was a $10,000 check to Collective. And so, of course, I cried because I do it all the time. Uh, and so crying, I called up Edward, and I asked them why he would do that. Edward doesn't live here. He lives in Annapolis. Edward has never been to this church. He's never seen you all. He's never seen anything that God is doing in this church, but he still knew that he wanted to be generous. And he told me that for years he kept his job not because he loved it, not because he wanted to drive to Baltimore every day, but because he knew that through his job he could be generous. And then he thanked me for giving him the opportunity to love his job. Edward found purpose in his career because it gave him opportunities to be generous. It gave him opportunities to love other people. It gave him opportunities to have an impact well beyond himself. To make the story even better, a few months later, Edward called me up and he's like, hey, do you guys want a vehicle? And so Edward donated us the Suburban that we used to pull our trailer. And the reason why he did that is because his job allowed him to do that. And so maybe, just maybe, you aren't happy with your career because the first thing you do when you get that paycheck is to do something for yourself. And maybe, just maybe, if we obeyed God and looked at our job as a way to be generous, if we looked at our job as a way to trust God, if we looked at our job as a way to truly make an impact on lives of others, maybe we would find more joy. Maybe we would find more peace. Maybe we would find hope. But the thing is, you will never know if you don't take that step and obey Scripture. And listen, we've been talking about this for a week, so I understand this isn't easy. I understand that talking about generosity and talking about greed and talking about all these things is creating tension in people. This isn't an easy thing. We don't sit up here and pretend like, oh, Michael said this thing, I'm good. I'm gonna go do it. Like you wrestle with it and that's a good thing. It isn't easy to change how you approach your job. It isn't easy to change how you approach money. It's not easy. But I think we'd all agree, or at least 85% of us would agree that we are doing things right now that just aren't working. And so maybe it's time to take a step toward obedience and see God unleashed in our finances. But at the end of the day, we have to take a step first. If you move forward in the book of Exodus, before Moses delivers the Israelites out of Egypt, he actually asks God for a sign. He's very nervous about it. He's not sure God is going to deliver them. He's not sure God's actually going to protect him. He's not sure God's going to be with him. And so they have this interaction where God says, go get my people. And he says, give me a sign, then I will go. But this is what God says in Exodus 3. Says, God answered, I will be with you, and this is your sign that I am the one who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God at this very mountain. And so God told Moses, if you do what I ask, then you will get the sign that you need. If you do what I've asked you to do, if you trust me first, then you will know that I brought you to this place. Not before, but after you are obedient. And so if you are a follower of Jesus and you are waiting for a sign to be generous, stop waiting and start being obedient. Then you will see God. Stop, I mean, Scripture's a sign, okay? Like, we, we know that. But if we're going to ignore that, we're waiting for a billboard or an email or something else outside of someone standing up on stage showing you what Scripture says, your sign is this. Do it, and God will show up in your life. If you're nervous about trusting God with your finances, even though he says when you give, he will open up the floodgates for you, if you are not sure that will happen, you have to give before you see that. And so you have to start being generous. You have to start tithing. You have to start trusting God with your finances. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you don't need to worry about the giving stuff. You can actually ignore everything I said in the sermon. But if you are feeling pain in your job, Jesus says there's a better way. If you are feeling pain in your job and you feel like it's a dead end, Jesus says there's a better way to do this if you just trust me. So Jesus is saying, trust me and I will show you. 
And for those of you who are skeptical about God or not sure, the thing is you have to take a step. God is saying, trust me and I will show you how real I am. Trust me and I will show you grace. Trust me and I will show you forgiveness. Trust me and I will show you hope. Trust me and I will show you love. Because at the end of the day, what God wants more than anything else is to show you just how good he is. But that only starts when you take a step of obedience. It starts when you put your faith in him. It starts when you get baptized. We have someone that's gonna get baptized in the next few weeks. And so if you're nervous about doing it alone, check off the box in your connection card. Come talk to me after service because we'd love to talk to you about taking a small step so you can see God move in big ways in your life. Do you know what the best thing about last week was? Uh, Coming out to the lobby and seeing all this food, there's 150 bags of food and that's great. But the best part is that as a church, we're just getting started. Collective is a little bit over a year old. In one year, we have watched as 45 people have put their faith in Jesus and got baptized. We have collected over 12,000 pounds of food through multiple events. We've packaged 10,000 more meals. We've seen God move in marriages and in addiction. And this is just the beginning. Just imagine what God could do if we truly unleashed him in this church. Just imagine what God could do if we truly unleashed him in this city. Just imagine what God could do if we truly unleashed him in this state. Because I believe that 2,000 pounds of food is good, but it would feel small. I believe that helping start one church in Haiti would feel easy. I believe that 45 baptisms would feel like we were just scratching the surface. And I don't know about you, but I want that. I want to feel that way. But the only way that happens is if we trust God and we obey. And so I'm gonna close out today with the same two questions that we've said each week. The first one is this, what is God saying to you? What is God saying to you? How is God challenging you? What do you need to wrestle with right now? Every single week we've asked asked this question. Every single week people have said, okay, I know what I need to wrestle with. Every single week some people have just ignored it. But there's something in your heart, there's a tension that you feel, whether it's about generosity or your life when it comes to the grace that Jesus wants to offer you. What is God saying to you? And the second question is this, what are you going to do about it? Our God is a God who speaks, and if you listen, he is speaking to you. Don't ignore him. Don't just sit there. Don't just wait for a sign. God says, be obedient, and I'll show you how good I am. Because at the end of the day, we want to see the power of God unleashed in our lives, in our families, in our city, in our state. Let's pray. God, thank you so much. Um, God, thank you that you're just patient with us. God, so many of us feel dissatisfied with life, um, God, with work, with our finances, with relationships, whatever it may be. And God, ultimately, at, at the end of the day, you're still patient. You still show us grace. You still show us love. And you still do everything you can to point us in the direction of a better life. And so, God, I pray as we close out this series, as we felt tension about our finances, about generosity, about our debt, about our job, God, we, I pray that we focus on you and we look at Scripture. And, God, instead of waiting for a sign, instead of waiting for something big to happen, instead of waiting for all the things to fall in place, God, that we take a step in obedience and we get to see how good you are. God, help us be more like the Israelites that had to take a step through the Red Sea before they could ever see how powerful you were. And when they got through on the other side, they all believed. So God, I pray that that happens at Collective today. God, give us opportunities this week to refocus on our job, to to find new purpose in our job. Give us patience as we work through that, God. But ultimately, at the end of the day, help us realize that we're working to glorify you, not ourselves, not our boss, not our company, not anything else. God, I pray that we have opportunities to do that this week. We love you and pray this in your name. Amen.